You're listening to Stir Crazy with Steve Jenkins. Conversations with creatives during the quarantine. Hey, what's up, people? This is Stir Crazy, and I'm Steve Jenkins. Thanks for listening. Also, I wanted to say thank you to everybody who checked out the podcast last week and listened to all three episodes. Got a lot of really positive feedback, and it feels good to know that people are digging it. It also feels good to know that folks find what people are talking about on here relatable to their own lives. But in any case, if you like what you're hearing, please go to the Apple Podcast Stir Crazy page and smash that five-star review, kid. Just kidding, only if you want to. Also, besides being able to listen to Stir Crazy on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, you can now, as of this week, also listen to it on Stitcher and Google Play Podcasts. Well, last week we had Passover and Easter, so happy Passover and happy Easter in the belated sense uh, for those that celebrate. Uh, And I hope those that did or whoever partook worship responsibly and socially distanced and uh you know that's got to be a weird thing to do on holidays but that's what we're supposed to do folks anyway we are four weeks now give or take a few days into this quarantine slash lockdown and i've been pulling back man you know like i'm trying to conserve my vibe because I know that we're in a marathon and not a sprint. And we're going to be in this shit for a long fucking time. So I'm taking my sweet time with everything. You know, I've been working on some music and and I got some different ideas for some cool videos and all kinds of other stuff. I think what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to avoid burnout and I'm trying to avoid this thing that sometimes happens where you're so wrapped up in trying to be productive and occupy your mind that you sort of forget about the world around you. And I'm finding it really, really difficult sometimes to balance everything. I'll tell you who seems really good at that is our guest this week, Brian Beller. For anyone who might not know, Brian is an extremely talented bass player who's been in Joe Satriani's band for the past few years. He's also one-third of the Aristocrats, which is a rock fusion prog trio that he has with Guthrie Govan and Marco Miniman. Brian has also worked with folks like Steve Vai. He plays bass in the live version of Death Clock. And he's been a huge part of Mike Keneally's musical output since the 90s. In addition to his sideman work, he's also a solo artist. And last year, he released the epic behemoth of a double album, Scenes from the Flood, which features people like Joe Satriani, John Petrucci, Neely Brosh, Nate Morton, Joe Travers, Mike Keneally, Gene Hoagland, and many other great players. And putting out a double album in this era, no small feat, folks. Anyway, I've known Brian personally since 2005, but I've known his playing and been a fan of his work for much longer. During my first year as a student at Berklee College of Music, I saw the band that Dweezil and Ahmed Zappa had, which was called Z at that time. That band had Brian on bass, Mike Keneally on guitar, and Joe Travers on the drums. And then a few years later, after Mike and Brian left Z, I saw Mike Keneally's new project at the Berkeley Performance Center called Beer for Dolphins, which was Brian on bass and Frank Briggs was on the drums. 
One lesser known interesting fact about Brian is the fact that he was the first blogger I ever was aware of. He had a blog of sorts called The Life of Brian, and he wrote about all kinds of stuff. And I think it started in like 1995. And it's a really interesting snapshot of a certain period of time. And Brian candidly talks about all kinds of stuff. You know, and I'm not even sure if it's connected to his website, which is brianbeller.com at this point. But I read the shit out of it in the 90s. There's one entry in particular that I think should be required reading for any ambitious musician. And this is where he talks in detail about his audition for Steve Vai in 1996. It's a fantastic read, and anyone that has the internet should try to find it. Anyway, Brian and I had a good chat. This is from a few weeks back around March 24th. We talk about all kinds of stuff, the current state of things, what he's been doing during this lockdown period. We talk about how awesome Joe Satriani is as a musician and a person. We talk about our different approaches to writing music, and we talk about what the road ahead looks like. Here it is. What's been happening, man? You know, I've been resting, honestly. Uh, I just, on March 6th, got back from a, uh, a seven and a half week tour of Europe with the Aristocrats. and. Before the holiday break, there was another six-week tour of Europe with the Aristocrats. And then a few weeks before that, there was a North American tour that was nine weeks long, and that was last summer. So I've been really kind of on the road uh, with the Aristocrats, which is uh, this Rock Fusion Trio. For anyone who doesn't know, the Rock Fusion Trio that I have with Guthrie Govan on guitar and Marco Miniman on drums. And uh, we have this new album out that came out in last June called You Know What? We've been promoting that album ever since. And... My solo album, Scenes from the Flood, that I've been working on for years, came out in September. So I've been kind of promoting those two things pretty much nonstop for the last nine months. And, you know, uh, we we just finished North America and Europe, like I said. And yet Asia and South America are markets that are still out there for us. But the majority of that cycle is done. And it's been six months since my solo album came out. And so it was kind of like a moment where I was just going to sit sit back and rest anyway, because I've been working real hard and being very public. And then, of course, all this heavy shit came down with the coronavirus. Uh, and so I've just, just I've just been kind of laying back and uh, and just kind of watching the whole thing unfold. I knew I needed to kind of rest and recover anyway. Uh, and uh, and so here I am. But there's some stuff coming up in the in the future. Obviously, all of our futures are impacted. And I'll get to that in a bit. But in terms of like kind of watching the landscape right now, you know, of course, everybody's at home and everybody's trying to generate content from home. And I think that's awesome. And uh, I'm just kind of sitting back and watching how it all unfolds right now before making any kind of like big, bold, decisive action around like what I'm going to do in the next two or three months. But I'll talk about that in a bit. I think for a lot of people, uh, just the, the abrupt halt to everything is a jarring thing to endure and sort of process in real time. Um, and so I have a feeling like some people who are used to being busy all the time, it's a real shock to their system. So, you know, I've noticed like maybe just out of self-preservation, people are trying to find stuff to do, uh, that will at least keep their, their mental, mental state, um, regulated somehow. Um, like what's it like to kind of have a pause and all that and not feel like, you know, you're beholden to anything. It's, it's, I would never wish this for anybody. Uh, but, uh, it's actually really welcome for me. 
I think maybe that there's a perception out there that I'm like the world's most work obsessed person in the world. And, and to a certain extent, that's true when I'm going hard. Uh, but I've been going hard really since kind of like 2017 when I started working on the demos for Scenes from the Flood. It was a double album. I, I And this will sound funny, not funny, excuse me, but it'll maybe sound familiar. I isolated myself at home for the better part of nine months. I didn't go out all, a lot. I didn't eat out. I barely left home. Uh, and I'm comfortable like that for long stretches of time. I live in a remote area and I purposely kind of can't, I, I can't really deal with living in an urban center. So I live outside the city and it's really quiet. And when I'm home, I isolate anyway. Uh, so I, I, the last thing I would ever wish for, you know, anyone is to have to suffer, you know, their livelihood, you know, and have all this incredibly horrific disruption, not to mention the health risk with a pandemic. But I think also it's an opportunity to kind of like just sit back and take a deep breath and pause and think about what is really important in your life. And, you know, that's a privileged thing to say. And I understand that because people who are, who are just making the rent every month, you know, uh, especially if they're doing it in the artistic community, just making rent every month, that's a tough hustle on the best day. And now it's almost an impossible hustle. So, you know, what do you do about that? So I'm not saying that, you know, everybody just needs to sit back and like, you know, do Zen prayers, you know, they'll come and take the furniture away. That doesn't work. Right. But it's worth noting that at least to me that we do all move very 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 quickly in this world and the speed of communication and work and opportunity has never been faster uh with all the screens all around us and all the instantaneous communication it's easy to forget what it was like before all this existed uh so it is an opportunity i think to just take some time and do that but you know we can't all just sit here and starve so that's true. Yeah, that's it's true. It's an interesting philosophical and sociological uh, moment. It's really bizarre, man. Uh, I've been I've been driving a little bit, like um, solo missions, so I'm not endangering anybody. But the timeline of this whole thing, unfortunately, coincided with the maturity date of my lease, and I had to lease another car. Um, uh-huh. So I. <laughs> so I got this new vehicle and, you know, I can't really take it anywhere and, and, uh, gas is really cheap right now, but I just, you know, I've been like kind of driving man and, and I haven't been doing it too much, but just when I need to get out and I don't want to like walk around cause it's funny, like there's a lot of people that are just going on walks in my neighborhood and stuff, which is cool, but it's like. I'm not really taking any chances with social distancing. Like it's just this weird, you know, where everything's been kind of flipped on its side and and I'm totally into like adhering to that. If it means it's going to keep people safe. But uh, yeah, I went up to PCH the other night, man, like at like two in the morning cause I couldn't sleep and it was beautiful. Um, but you know, it's like the undercurrent of why, why I had to do that. It's like, it's, it's a lot, man. It's like a lot of mental gymnastics and uh I think it's, I think it's definitely something that, you know, we're, we're very early in this. So it's, it's kind of a weird, a weird time. Uh, yeah. It's, it's heavy energy. And, and, and I think that, you know, I don't think anyone would ever accuse me of being insufficiently practical, but I actually am quite, uh, what's the word without sounding like a douchebag, uh, 
empathic, you know, to the general state of things. And, you know, I really tried to, uh, with scenes from the flood, it was like, you know, the aristocrats is like such a kind of a happy go lucky, take the piss out of everything, play all the notes, have lots of fun kind of thing. Uh, and I, I kind of reserved the more serious stuff for my solo material and scenes from the flood was a small story when I started conceiving it, but it, as it, as it evolved for me, I realized that I was kind of writing a meditation on, uh, the perils of human nature. That's what the album's really about. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and, and it gets a little bit dark in the end, but it, it only feels that way because that's in some ways, I think that that's the real uh, and uh, I, I wanted to have the protagonist of that album go through a journey in which his illusions about the world were stripped away one by one, despite the massive resistance that a typical human being would put up to that sort of uh, not always pleasant realization. But on the other side of that, uh, acceptance of reality is a kind of freedom. But it's a, it, you have to go through hell to get there. And, uh, you know, it's... It, Anything that I would have wanted to say creatively about what's going on right now, I feel like I already said it in the album, which is weird and eerie, but that's what's real for me. So right now, I'm not quite sure what I want to say artistically and creatively. So I'm just pausing and kind of gathering uh, data and emotive content. Uh, and where that ends up is where that ends up. But uh I can feel it out there just, just this incredible uh shared experience that we're all having of something that is heavy and frightening and causes us all to kind of just look inward about the state of our lives i mean like that's the uh mental exercise of confronting mortality right it's it just just makes you think about all those things and that's what this is all about everybody's doing it all at once generally we're moving so fast all of us all the time, all these different directions, you know, that's not the thing that's foremost on everyone's mind, even though it's a subconscious programming running all the time. Uh, now, suddenly it's on the forefront of everybody's mind and it causes human beings to act in very, very weird ways. No, that's, that's accurate. There's been someone papering the apartment buildings where I'm at, like with delivery service, uh, flyers like you know we'll, we'll get stuff for you and like the last line of the flyer it, it just says survive with an exclamation point and uh i really i mean it's funny and it's kind of morbid but i actually actually think that's what most people are thinking about right now it's like we're kind of in this weird uh this weird uh matrix of like how are we going to survive this thing and you know it's it's very strange man i i was i was in italy uh from February 13 to 25. And we did, the aristocrats did seven out of our nine shows there we were able to do. Only two were canceled. In that nine day period where we were doing shows, I probably shook the hands and posed for pictures with like at least 500 Italian people. Jesus. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's some kind of uh, miracle that I ended up uh, not getting it or that I'm not showing any symptoms, you know? Who knows, right? Anyway, I'm, I'm isolating anyway, so what difference does it make? But uh, just knowing that I was there, and, and they were already shutting down the northern provinces while we were in the country. It, so it was like, it was really knocking on our doorstep. We ended up having to leave the country in a hurry because we had heard while we were in the country that 
Austria wanted to shut down the border with Italy. And then an hour later over the newswire, the, the EU stepped in and said, no, 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 you can't do that. You're part of the EU. Uh, and we all just looked at each other and said, yeah, we've seen this movie before, like 80 years ago. Let's get out of here. <laughs> you know? yeah. Jesus. And, and so we just didn't stop. We had to leave Italy at once and we didn't stop driving until we got into Austria because we didn't want to risk the rest of the dates of the tour being you know, we didn't want to risk not being able to get out of the country for some reason and risk the rest of the dates of the tour. So we did get out and we went to Austria and then Russia and then Ireland and then UK and then I came home. Uh, so I was already kind of feeling like things were changing because I was over there before I got home. And, you know, when I got home, you know, I'm in the United States and it was March 6th and it wasn't that long ago that everything was really, really super normal. Everybody was acting like nothing was going on. And I remember when I came in through LAX uh, I'm thinking, well, there must be some system to check where I've been because I'm like candidate for getting stopped. I was in Italy for two weeks, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and they didn't stop me. They didn't even ask me any questions. Nothing. They just they they just they, I went to the self passport kiosk and I printed out the thing, you know, put in my information. I walked up to the customs officer. He looked at me, stamped my passport and said, welcome home. Jesus, man. Um. What was, let me ask you this, like, what were people in, in Italy, were, was anyone talking about that? Like, um, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, what uh, were they we, saying? Like, what were folks saying uh, when you were sort of like amongst them, whether it be after the show or just hanging out beforehand, setting up? There, there was a difference between the North and the South, just like there always has been in Italy. Uh, we started in the North. Those are the very, for the first show we did was outside Milan on February 16th. It was like, just two days before the outbreak there and and then right after that we did parma and then we went way south we went all the way to naples and rome and down there there weren't any cases being reported yet it was only in the north but we were already hearing talk about like what was going to happen in the north were they going to shut down the northern provinces because our last two shows were back up in the north we were working our way back up north mm -hmm. so there was some talk about it but it was like no one really wanted to bring it up is what i sensed it was like everybody was just trying to i don't want to say get while it getting's good but uh, th there was a sense that like something could happen and no one really wanted to go too deep into it uh meanwhile we were watching the news every day when we woke up trying to see what was going on and then finally Sure enough, you know, the, the last two shows, we were in Pisa, and that was the day. That's like central Italy on the western side. And then we were supposed to go to Torino that day, which is way up in the northwest. And Torino is where the, the, the right near in the region where the first outbreak happened. And it was the morning that we were supposed to go to Torino that the government uh, said no public gatherings. And so we knew then that that show was canceled. There was another show in Montebelluna, uh, which is the north east part of the country we weren't sure if that would be canceled and then later that day it was canceled and then the thing happened with austria and then the eu and then we were like that's it let's get out of here wow um everyone else in the band cool like is guthrie and, and marco they're they're healthy and safe yeah you know marco actually had a, a clinic tour a drum clinic tour that was supposed to start after our tour was over and it was going to start in the uk and ireland and then go to germany and france he did a couple dates in the uk and then that was it he ended up he ended up uh, canceling and coming home. Okay. Guthrie lives in London and he's fine. Although you know the UK just as of today, as of the day of the taping of this podcast, they just started their shutdown. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, we consider ourselves very, very fortunate that we got all those dates in before all this shit went down. You know, we, it's like, thank God we, uh, you know, there were, uh, 59 dates that we did in Europe and then another 55 dates that we did in the, in the States. And I know that there are bands and there are projects that have, who have invested all the money up front in an album, which is not cheap. Uh, and the, the startup cost for the tour. And then here they are and that's it. They can't go. And all these costs are sunk. It's a, it's a catastrophe. And you know, we should be, there should be, why are entertainers excluded from whatever government assistance is going to be provided to people? I mean, you know, Adam Schiff, congressman from uh, Glendale and Burbank, wrote a letter to the uh, chairmen of the uh, of the committees that are working on the final uh, bill, or at least this final bill. Mm-hmm. And it was a very eloquent statement about how entertainers, you know, depend on income for in the future. In other words, like when our stuff is canceled, it's not a salary cancellation. It's income that we were counting on that was not necessarily contracted, but was real. And that's how we live our lives. And it's all gone. And that's, you know, 150,000 people or something like that in the region that have had, they, they estimated, that have had their lives impacted by this. Uh, am I holding my breath waiting for government assistance on this whole thing? Of course not, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but it's just, you know, we're a part of the economy too. Like, w- w- if we don't have money, we don't spend money. It all counts. Yeah. Uh, so this is all a lead in to, to, to say that, you know, why am I even talking about needing assistance, you know, because we just completed our tour. Well, uh, you know, the Joe Satriani European tour, uh, when by the time this goes public, uh, the news will have broken that Joe Satriani is postponing the first leg of his European tour. That was supposed to be in April and May and, and some of June. It's complicated, so I don't want to get into the details of it too much. But it doesn't take a genius to figure out that anybody who had touring work lined up for the next three months is going to get impacted. Oh, yeah. I, and I had two months in Europe lined up. And then right after that, the aristocrats were supposed to go to Asia. Maybe Asia will be OK by then. But who knows whether they're going to let anybody from the United States in the way we're going, you know. And, and so we, I don't know what the future uh, holds, but I, I'm trying not to stay to be tripped out about it. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I'm just kind of sitting back and watching people uh what they're doing and providing content uh and uh what their plans are for while they stay home and we're all kind of figuring it out uh one day at a time as we go along yeah i mean i think the thing that we do and i think a lot of industries that are not necessarily um reflected in the stock market like our economy the economy of entertainment is based on confidence so like what i mean is like something like a coachella that's only successful because people would go to that not having the fear for their lives, right? And so if people are gonna buy tickets to something and it's like, oh, I might get this thing that could take me out permanently, you know, or, or remove me from Earth, like they're not gonna go. And if that risk is gonna be for, you know, inherent for like the entertainers and the people that like are vendors there and like the people that like rent the festival, like the Porta Johns, like all of a sudden you have something where no one is brave enough to want to commit because um, the fear of somebody getting sick or lots of people getting sick um, is super high. And that is why like all the live stuff and the sporting events and the public gathering oriented things that have an economy are kind of kind of temporarily in a bad place while this thing gets like uh while this thing develops and you know uh we figure out like 
how to contain it or, or develop a vaccine. And I think that's the part that's the scariest thing. Like, you know, in one fell swoop, things that exist like that are pretty much on hold until further notice. Yeah, uh, well, you know, you, you phrased that very intelligently, I thought, the confidence economy. You know, one way to describe it is that the entertainment industry is on the bleeding edge of the confidence economy. Yes. So, you know, uh, the the risks that people take, and we all take risks. I mean, we're all, you know, we're all entrepreneurs. We're used to some level of uncertainty and risk, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, anyone who's ever had to hustle gigs to make rent and a credit card payment one month and then landed the biggest single gig pay of their career the next month, you know, knows that there's risk and reward. And that's on a micro scale and a macro scale, but that's part of the gig. Uh, you don't count on, I mean, every, and, and this is this is the thing that kind of gets bigger than that to what your point was. There's that little thing that everybody deals with, but then there's this kind of macro confidence out there that has to exist or else no one's going to gather anywhere. And we're right on the edge of that. So, you know, when you see these contracts, they all have the force majeure clause in it because we're all entering into some kind of risky agreement whenever we do a show, you know, somebody, the promoter is renting the venue or the, the, or the venue is the promoter and they're, you know, putting on the risk of like, opening their club that night and how many people are going to show up, how many, how much money are they going to make selling drinks? Are they going to be able to pay their employees? Will they profit? You know, that happens on a nightly basis everywhere. If a band cancels, then there's a punishment clause for them canceling because they've harmed the venue. If the venue cancels on the band, then they're liable because they've, you know, they've breached the contract and what have you and, and, and on and on and on. But force majeure exists for a reason. You know, force majeure is the act of God, a pandemic, a, a, a weather calamity in which no party is held responsible. And when that means that whatever you do, you're doing it at your own risk with no avenue for recompense if it doesn't happen. Well, who's going to step forward and put on a show or perform or agree to perform in a show in an environment like that when it can't be guaranteed that it will, you know, at least that the risk will be mitigated? And that's what's so infuriating about some of the current analysis. And, you know, this could all end up being old news by the time this podcast airs that, you know, in order to in order to save the economy, we need to relax restrictions on social distancing. What kind of economy do these people think that we're going to have by easing social distancing? Like who's going to show up for the jobs? Who's going to go out there and be like, yeah. Eh, it's a virus. I'll take my chances. That's not how human beings work. No. We're, we're you know, I mean, now we're back to the fear of mortality conversation. Yes. You know, that is, we do have survival instincts, you know, and those are stronger than the instincts to go do a gig for $100, get on a plane and fly to seven different Asian countries. Yeah, it's truly mind-blowing, man. Um I definitely feel like this this whole thing, uh, just in terms of of how to like think about the future. I've been trying not to because I find that I'm not sure anyone can really see around it. You know, um, like because I don't think, you know, I don't think when when this is all done and who knows when that is. Like, I don't think people are gonna change the things they like to do. I think people just need to know that those things are going to be safe to do again, you know? And I, I think that's the, that's the real kicker. And I, I think even though 
the economy looks bad, at least as it's reflected on the stock market. I just think that ultimately, once people are confident that they can do the things they've always done, it'll it'll turn itself around. But um, yeah, it's yeah. just, it, you know, it, it's, you, it's there, 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 there's a whole I mean, this could really, really go off the rails, this conversation about, you know, <laughs> Uh, politics and all the rest of that stuff. And that's not why I'm here. You know, I mean, there's smarter people than me who have done the political and sociological work to sure, you know, so, so, I mean, just trying to bring this thing a little bit closer back to home. Uh, what do we do as, uh, as musicians in this and as human beings? And, and I've, I've decided that just for me, uh, I'm just hitting the pause button hard. Uh, I'm not doing much every day. I'm, uh, I live in a rural area, so I'm hiking a lot. I'm like doing that home cleaning and reorganization and purging of unnecessary shit that, you know, we all say we're going to do and we never do. I'm doing it. Uh, I don't have very many possessions anyway, because I live in a small place and I'm on the road a lot. So why? Uh, but I'm being ruthless right now about anything in my uh, living space that I don't use on a regular basis. I'm just getting rid of it. Uh, and uh, just kind of trying to get back to the really, really basic elemental stuff about what life is about. And uh, I'll have to trust that musicality and creativity will, will, will come once I kind of reposition myself in this uh, new space. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people are in that same mindset, even if people are sort of scrambling to make it look like they're still trying to be productive. I think we're still in reset mode. But do you think once, you know, once we get to the next level of that, like, do you think, you know, I mean, you know, there's, there's always that, that sort of that trope that like, well, great art has come, come out of like major periods of adversity. I mean, do you think we're going to see kind of like some kind of resurgence of anything or do you think it's just going to be you know, this is when people learned how to use their technology to live stream and stay creative when when a lot of like avenues are suppressed just by logistics. Probably the answer to your question is yes, there, there, there will be. I mean, you know, people, uh, a lot of the world's great creative and artistic output has come from uh, angsty vibes. Right. So uh, there's a lot of angst to go around right now. And, and I think that that will probably be expressed beautifully by more than one musician and it won't be limited to just music in terms of art. Uh, so yes. And also there will be uh, a lot of people who have resisted getting into newer technology, getting into it just as a means to do something regardless of where they are along their reset journey. Uh, speaking personally, uh, I, uh, you know, for me, like I said, it's a bit strange because there's no point in me kind of trying to generate creative artistic output musically about what's going on right now, because I, I did it already for me. The, the scenes from the flood is a meditation that was almost, it's to me, it's hard for me to listen to now because it almost feels like a bit of a premonition, uh, which is weird. Uh, and I know that kind of sounds arrogant to say, and I don't mean it to sound arrogant, but like that these were the themes that I was trying to explore on that album about, you know, uh, human nature is you got to be careful uh, and you got to find the good energy and the love where you can find it but you got to look at the world with a with an open real realistic eye so uh, that's where I am on it but I 
I'm sure that a lot of other people will go out there and make the best art they can, and they absolutely should. But I think probably it's worth pausing, at least for a moment, before rushing straight to Pro Tools or right. whatever, uh, yeah. you know, and digesting all of this because it's it's we're living through history right now, man. And who knows absolutely. what this thing will look like in a week? And then as far as the technology thing is concerned, speaking personally, you know, I am a bit of a luddite uh, with like. I'm not Mr. Post an Instagram video every three days, and that's just not me. It's not really part of my artistry. It's not never really been my brand. Uh, but I remember, of course, in the beginning of the internet, when the only thing that you really could do on a consistent basis was post pictures and literature, and I did that a lot in the very early days, even in the mid '90s. Oh yeah, and man, that was so great. The life of Brian, dude. I read uh, that. I read that a whole bunch. That's so it's so weird that you think even now this day you don't realize especially back then you didn't realize that it really was going all over the world you just didn't understand it because yeah. the connections weren't the same now you really understand it but that's kind of like my go-to creative outlet uh in times like this not really reaching for the bass and like playing a loop and like you know just kind of working on something and then putting it on Instagram. Uh, and I certainly wouldn't want to start manufacturing that just because we are in these times, because I think that that would, that would show up a bit inauthentic, both for me and for the people who were watching it. I'm not saying I'll never put up a video, but I, I would a lot more, I'd be a lot more infrequent and maybe, you know, cautious about it than, uh, than people who grew up in this generation then just and feel like it's totally natural and it's fine. I'm not denigrating anybody else who's doing it. I'm just only speaking oh, no, no. for me. But, uh, you're but a yeah, storyteller. so yeah, I mean, you're, I feel like you're like a, you're like a storyteller musician, man. I should probably clarify this for anyone listening. Scenes from the flood is a double record. So when you say that, like you've expressed, you know, a lot of the stuff that you would probably express now, I mean, take into account we're talking like about a double album right we're not talking about like a six song ep so people would assume that it could be that these days because there is a lot of that and there's nothing wrong with that matter of fact yeah. economically and practically there's a lot to be said for doing it that way instead but yeah it's 18 songs 88 minutes it's such a throwback format uh so yeah it was a it, it was a big thing but you know there is a lot that i could do and i've thought about it once i kind of get over the hump and i you know, I move slowly and deliberately generally. Uh, once I get over the hump of processing all this and my home reorganization project is complete, uh, then yeah, I might sit down and I might do work on a playthrough of, uh, you know, one of the songs from the album, uh, maybe. Yeah. Uh, or, or something else. I'm just not sure yet. Uh, the only thing that I know is that I'm in total gathering and absorption mode right now. Mm -hmm. I'm not output mode. I am in input mode. Gotcha. Well, let me ask you this. Were there any tracks that didn't make it to scenes from the flood that you might revisit or did you just kind of write for the record and that's that's what you had going into it? There was not a note left on the cutting room floor. Uh, I, I had the in the years leading up to when I even started the demos, I had the uh, I was keeping a text document outline of the album with the song titles and the vibes. And I had a series of iPhone voice memos that matched it. And by the time I, this is going to sound totally alien, but by the time I sat down to actually start doing the demos in uh, spring of 2017, I could pretty much sing the album to myself from front to back in my head. 
Wow. There were only a couple spots that were nebulous. I know where they were. There were some of the ethereal uh, uh, soundscapey stuff. But most of it was there. I would make this joke to people that, like, if I could have just opened up my mouth and the sound of a record would have come out, it would have been a whole lot easier and cheaper to make the album. That's not the way, that's not the way it works. You got you to gotta demo it. You got to do the whole thing. And so I took nine months and I just worked out. I worked off the outline and I made the demos in sequence of the album, one song by one song. So I, I created the album as I went, as it existed in my head. And when I got to the end of it, I was like, yep, that's what I thought it was. So you got to the demo process lets you kind of audition how the feel of a body of work like an album's going to going to come off in the end. That's what I did with uh Coaxial Flutter cuz I think, you know, I mean you're better at this than me probably, but like like instrumental music doesn't just have to be about like improvised solo sections and stuff like that. Um I think sometimes you can write stuff where you have like a collective of people and interesting things are going to happen. Um, but like, you know, it, it's all dependent on the day and the time and the position of Jupiter and all that, all this other shit. Whereas like, if you're just kind of composing stuff and you're leaving some room for a couple things and it's framed by either, you know, an arrangement or maybe like just an idea of how long you want something to go on for. I think there's, there's a, there's an art to that as well you know yeah well and and then you're kind of it depends on what your general genre and your idiom is when you're writing instrumental music you know it's a, it's the old cliche like oh it's instrumental music must be jazz you know <laughs> right <laughs> well, there's no word it's got to be jazz right yeah so you know, of course that's not true we all know that's not true and 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 I, my you know your artistry uh, i think has a uh it kind of walks the line it, it uh it, it's it really is a tr- like a straight up fusion, like equal rock and jazz. Uh, and then there's some like, you know, little hip hop elements in there. Uh, and there's even some metal elements in there. But it's like a true fusion. Uh, whereas I-, I think that I walked the line. I, I think my- I was confused in my artistry, especially with my first two albums, whether or not I was a fusion artist or uh, a progressive artist. And, and you can listen in those albums where I was kind of walking on either side of the fence. And then finally with this album, I just decided, no, it's not a fusion album. This is a progressive instrumental album. Essentially it's instrumental progressive rock. Uh, and that really helped clarify kind of the mission and what I was trying to do. Uh, and it also lent itself to kind of, you know, really detailed demos because I knew what the arrangements were going to be. It didn't mean that like, I was like, now here, John Petrucci, play these notes on the solo from the demo. <laughs> it wasn't that, but you know, it, but the structures of course, and the arrangements were, were very planned out. Whereas like, I would have a question for you, like the first song, Coaxial Flutter, uh, there's a section in the end where it suddenly switches into a really, really heavy metric modulation with the drums. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, was that on the demo? Yeah, that was actually, ah. yeah, the first version of that tune, um, I actually wrote it more like a quote unquote jazz tune. And the first time I played that tune, uh, I had this gig, um, I had my own gig at the blue note. I've played there a bunch, uh, over the years, but I had Mark Giuliano on drums and I had this great guitar player named near Felder and, we played it more like a jazz tune, you know, like we, everyone took solos and, 
it just kind of, even though those guys are blazing and, you know, Mark's, Mark's a phenomenal musician and, and so is near, it just worked better as a progressive rock song, you know, or like a progressive rock and form song. Um, it just, you know, it seemed to work better like that, but yeah, that part at the end was, was always in there. Um, I actually changed like the, there's like that middle line, like that's the second part, I guess. Like I changed that line a little bit when I, when I reef when I reformatted it to be more of a rock thing, but yeah, no, originally it sounded like sort of like downtown New York, you know? Well, it still totally sounds like New York, you know, uh, 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 Satriani and I were talking about that once about how, how New York it sounded. Oh, really? Yes. We had that conversation. I remember. Oh, that's cool. Uh, he he yeah. bought that record, man. It, it was weird. Like I was going to send him that track. This is right after yep. we did G four. And, uh, yeah, it was it was right in that time period. We were talking about you and and uh, and, uh, and and that album. And, uh, oh wow! I was like, yeah, it's a super super New York vibe. <laughs> <laughs> well, the solo on there, you know, that's bass. Everyone thinks it's baritone guitar, but it's totally like Satriani, kind of Holdsworth Satriani influence a little bit. Like, yeah, um, yeah. I was even running through like Amplitude. I had like a Marshall and like a Phase 90. So I was sort of trying to emulate like a Van Halen thing. But yeah, like the lower pitched, like the lower notes that kind of sing, like that's, I hear Satriani do that all the time. So I, yeah. Yeah, I'm sending it to him just to be like, hey man, this was definitely influenced by you. And then before I could even send it to him, he bought the record. So I was really taken aback by how cool, cool that was and unnecessary because I would, I would have gladly given it to him because i certainly learned a lot from listening to him play but he's yeah it was crazy man he watched our set with skolnick from the side and and like i didn't know he was there the whole time and it's probably better that i didn't know that he was oh there. yeah i know it's always better when, it's always better when you don't know if someone like that's there you know it's uh <laughs> it's it's a fun thing uh but no I, you know i could go on and on and on about how awesome joe Satriani is as a, as a person as a human and as a musician and he's way way deeper than people give him credit for you know the whole thing out there about like oh it's just simple melodies and you know he's just writing that you know really simple changes and you know basic you know straight ahead rock and roll song that's not it man you know you're missing the point if that's what you hear it doesn't mean that you can't enjoy it that way and it's a a nice byproduct of his artistry that people can enjoy that but yeah. he's ridiculous amount of time going over tiny details of those melodies in those songs and those basic grooves it's like the oldest adage right the hardest stuff to play is the simplest stuff to play uh and 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 those songs are crafted very 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 specifically i have a lot of respect for the way that he does that and it's only when you play it live do you realize how much thought goes in to how much space there is so I, I, I really took that to heart and it ended up, you know, he's incredibly supportive of other artists who he digs uh, and who he's into and, and who he's working with. And, you know, he's on a track on Scenes from the Flood called Volunteer State. And when I wrote it, I didn't really realize I was writing a showpiece for him until I heard the demo back. And then I realized, wow, this is a song that was influenced by me being around him. Uh, yeah. And it also has a very, very optimistic vibe, which is not something that I generally gravitate towards in my own compositions, like a real, like flat out major tonality, like, you know, you know, everything's going to be cool. Let's go have a good time. That kind of thing. Uh, and that's a hard vibe to pull off and have it sound cool. And, and that's his bread and butter, you know. So uh, when when I gave him that song, 
he, you know, I, I showed him the demo. I said, you know, I really think that it would be cool if you could, if you could do this, uh, if you could be a part of it. And I was expecting 50, 50, yes or no. You never know. And he said, yeah, sure. Absolutely. And then he held on to it for two months. I remember I, I'm thinking like, this is a pretty simple song with a simple melody. You know, I, I, I wonder why he's got it for so long. And he had it for like about six weeks and he wrote me an email and says, I'm still, I'm still kind of working out what it is that I want to do around this thing. So can I have a little bit more time with it? I'm like, Yes, of course, Joe Satriani. You can have more time, <laughs> you know. And yeah. uh, and so another four weeks later, he sends me an email with a link to a Dropbox folder. He's like, "Okay, so here it is. I think you're going to love it, or you're going to hate it." But I ended up doing a lot, and it went on and on. He like did a, a he practically co-produced the track and, and co-arranged it. He sent me this big thing with like the lead, two harmonies, two acoustic guitars, a chora, a banjo. Yeah, uh, he went in, know, man. And he went totally in. And yeah. and I'm, I'm I'm looking at all these tracks, and I'm like, holy shit, what am I going to do with all this? And so one by one, I put them into Pro Tools, and I mixed them across the spectrum. When I put it all together and I listened to it, I was like, oh, my fucking God, he just produced this track. <laughs> and he gave you a string section, man. Yeah, it was just unbelievable. And, uh, you know, I mean, the elements of the song were definitely there. If you listen to the demo and you listen to the song, you're like, yeah, that's definitely the song. But, you know, when you hear Joe Satriani's artistry, it's so pronounced. It's so mature. It's mm-hmm. so self-assured. He knows who he is mm-hmm. so holistically and completely. It's uh, I, I, there are just very, very few artists that I've ever worked with who had such a strong sense of who they were, like literally with every note they played. So, yeah, you know, uh, Satriani is amazing. Yeah. And, uh, of that he was in your record and uh and he also does a really good job of kind of getting to the essence of things like when i say like it does have a new york vibe i'm someone who grew up in new jersey in new york i know what that kind of feels like you know that that kind of pretty new york you know jazz scene and it doesn't even have to be jazz doesn't have to be hard swing in order to emote that kind of vibe and it's totally emoting that kind of vibe yeah i mean that was so the title that was a that was a situation where i had the title before i had the song and um, I just I, I approve that method, by the way, I, I, that's the way I like to do it all the time. Yeah, I was I was taking the the L train back to my apartment and, uh, you know, like that's a really tough city to exist in. Um, I'm, I'm sort of speaking about that. I mean, now it's I it's probably really hellish. But just in general, like going back to that time period, like it was, you know, that's it's definitely you know, especially being a creative musician in New York, like it, it hasn't really gotten easier and i just remember one night you know i was riding the train back and the train stopped like a couple stops before mine and i just was kind of looking at the wall as the doors open and someone had written in like red pen leave this city before you can't and i was like wow oh <laughs> i never heard that story before i did i that's 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 the universe like smashing you across the head with us with us with a with a vibe a song idea that's great yeah, I mean, it was it was weird, but it kind of, you know, that sort of became the paradigm of that song and maybe that record. I mean, that record is sort of um, there's like a loose concept and it's just about, you know, it's sort of reflected in the album cover. Like there's like the mechanical hawk fighting the organic hawk. And I was I almost caught an analog hawk, but, um, you know, just like a regular. So it's just kind of like about like your demons fighting like your true essence, you know, and like how to, you know, how to like sort of. It's a little bit heady, but that's sort of where my head was at at the time. Like I was trying to figure out, you know, 
I feel like a lot of times like making your own music, you're sort of figuring out yourself or the world around you. And, um, you know, it had been a long time since the first one I did. And I just felt like that was probably the more, that was the most realistic version of myself as a musician I could put out. So I feel like even though, uh, I'm really proud of my first one, which I actually just re-released with live tracks. Um, yeah, I saw that. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. You know how it is, man. Like you, I think, you know, we're constantly updating our, you know, our musical profile pictures with the stuff we put out. And I feel like that one, even though it's been some time, uh, since it came out, that's still a pretty accurate representation of how I like to look at music. Um, so I'm yeah, man. looking at right now, you know, I, I never really took a real close look at this. Uh, uh, and now I see the two Hawks, the, the one on its back and the one kind of like leaning down, which one is the digital Hawk and which one is the, uh, other Hawk. The one on top, the one on top has like the like the mechanical parts and stuff. Like it, right? Okay. Oh, and the one on the bottom is the all natural hawk. Yeah, my friend did that illustration. Uh, this guy Rich Guzman, and um, honestly, man, that the cover was inspired by skateboard art from the '80s. You know, like that was basically it. Like my whole thing was, even if you think this sucks, you probably like the artwork of Powell Peralta skateboards. So you'll probably like, you know. This will look cool on your <laughs> shelf, at least. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I, I like the, uh, the the splitting your mind into. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of duality and conflicts in that, which I dig. Well, I you know one thing I really liked about scenes from the flood was how everything had a visual component. You know, because you sent me the the booklet with all the you know with all the narrative stuff and and all the different pictures. What where what did that come from? Like did you are you like a visual composer or was it something that kind of came Yeah, later? So, yeah, it's an interesting uh question because it actually came out of something very utilitarian and then it sprouted into something artistic. I remember uh seeing uh when I got the 9 inch nails album, which one was it? Uh Oh my god, I'm blanking. Uh, the slip, uh, and, uh, on the slip, when you played it in your iPod, every, you know how you, when you play an album in your iPod, every album has an artwork and it just sits up there, you know, while the song plays. Well, yes. in this album, every time the song changed, the artwork would change. It was in the metadata. And I thought that that was so cool. Yeah, that record and, rules. By the way, I I remember when that came out. Oh, like I could go, I could spend an hour just talking about that record. Anyway, <laughs> uh, it, it, I thought, hey, that's a great idea. You know, uh, I would love to have different art because people, you know, digest music on their on their digital music playing platforms. Of course, this was like before when I even started thinking about this. It was kind of before Spotify really took over everything. So it was outdated thinking almost even right at the jump, but. That's what I thought. I thought, yeah, it would be cool to have a different artwork for every one of these things. And then as I was making the demos and realizing that I was really constructing a four-side double vinyl album, I thought to myself, you know, why should those artworks only be in the metadata for the digital version of the album? That like defeats the whole purpose of deluxe packaging and saying that it's a real old fashioned double album and everything. If it was a real old fashioned double album, uh, it would, uh, it would have a big booklet. And that's when I thought, ah, you know, 
every song should have its own artwork and there should be booklets. And then I had to sit there for a little while and uh, and try, try and figure out exactly how that would play out on the vinyl and the CD because more people were going to, a lot more people were going to have a CD than a vinyl. Uh, and then I realized, okay, every song will have its own artwork. The double CD will have two booklets. Each booklet will be 20 pages. And that's what the packaging for the CD is. It's two discs and then two 20-page booklets in a six-panel digipack. And then the LP will have uh, a 24-page booklet with, you know, uh, a single big booklet with full-color illustrations, the real full size of each of the songs. And as far as why I wanted to have, you know, from an artistic point, what the what the illustrations are about, you know, it's a concept album and there's a story. So I... You know, and it's instrumental for the most part. There's only three songs that have lyrics. So you're leaving a lot of room. You're trying to tell a story with just music and song titles. That's your only chance in language other than the three songs that have lyrics. And I thought that if I create a series of iconic images, you know, not like really detailed drawings, because that gets lost in smaller viewing formats, but just like really kind of close to pop art icons that would symbolize each song. Uh that that would go a long way into kind of guiding the listener into what the story was really all about. And so in the first half of the album, I kind of introduced symbols that represent different concepts, ways of thinking, and ca even characters in the story. And then as the album progresses, those symbols start to reappear in combined images, almost as if like a story plot was moving forward and characters were now in conflict or in some journey together or... Uh, events were were colliding you know like a like a like a story would move together you have you introduce the characters and then there's a kind of a second act where some stuff happens and then there's conflict and then in the third act you have your climax uh and so that's what i was really trying to do but with very very kind of subtle symbology you know not everybody's going to want to go that deep into an album i get that uh but for anybody who does there are very there are Easter eggs scattered throughout the album, both audio-wise and visual-wise in the drawings, that will kind of give you a little bit more of an insight as to uh, what the real story is and what I was trying to say. And that's not to say that everyone's not going to have their own interpretation of the story, because that definitely happened. No one, you know, when you make an album and you're telling a story, especially if it's an instrumental album, you know, there's no way people can just read your mind and you don't want them to. You know, you want to create a piece of art that's big enough for people to walk into and enjoy on their own and have their own association and experience with it. I mean, like, why do people love The Wall by Pink Floyd? I, I, I don't think it's because they all want to know every single detail about how Roger Waters' father died in that plane crash in World War II, even though that's tragic. That's not why people love The Wall. They love The Wall because they've got their own experience with it. So... I've hopefully created a context with the artwork and the music on that album that's big enough for people to walk in, have their own experience with it, but also have some insight into what I was trying to say, at the very least at a contextual level. Yeah, that's cool. How autobiographical is Scenes from the Flood, would you say? Like, you don't have to give away, like, what parts are, but, like, with how much of it, you know? Oh, it's, it's, it's definitely based on my experiences with the world. I mean, that's that's what it's all about is trying to process something as grand as, you know, this is my musical thesis on human nature. <laughs> you know, there, there's just no way to do that without uh, having your own personal experiences impact the thesis. So I would say yes. And uh, and beyond that, I don't think I would want to say more. 
any um any book album or movie recommendations that you know maybe people might not have seen while we're uh, all kind of staying inside oh you know uh well i mean you know it's like what have i just some fun stuff i've been listening to lately uh hang on uh, well, uh, there's a couple things. Well, first of all, you know, Joe Satriani does have a new album coming out called Shapeshifting. So if you're a Joe Satriani fan, you definitely need to get a hold of that because it's a great album. I've heard it. Chris Chaney plays bass. He's a great bass player. Uh, Kenny Aaron Allen drums, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, Mike Keneally has a new album out. Is a collaboration with a guy from Australia named Scott Shore, and the album's called MFTJ. That record's great. It's, isn't it great? That's yeah. The, that, yeah, people just need to just go go to Bandcamp and just get it. It's just it's just a great collection of instrumental grooves, vibes, melodies, and and it's just this kaleidoscopic presentation that really Mike Keneally excels at. He, he's just he's just got so much going on. It's hard to even describe, right? Yeah, uh, I'm talking to him tomorrow actually, so that's going to be oh, great. We're going to talk great. About uh, I also I've been listening to a lot of Big Wreck lately, which is a, a rock band from Canada that not everybody in the states is hip to, but their guitarist uh, Ian Thornley is like absolute world class motherfucker, and it's like really really great melodic pop rock, like somewhere between Zeppelin, uh, Soundgarden, and Sabbath, but like unique still. It's super cool, uh, and uh, my favorite Big Wreck album is Ghosts, and. Uh, and then there's this band called Psychedelic Porn Crumpets. Are you familiar with them? No, I haven't heard that. The, the crazy Australians, you know, just more wacky, crazy Australians. The, the album that I've been listening to is called High Visceral Part One. Really, really cool retro guitar tones and uh, kind of old school psychedelic prog, but like with some really cool guitar parts and grooves. And, you know, I'm kind of late to this party, but... Uh, I got. I just this last year got into Knower. Oh right, they're great. I know, and of course everybody. I think a lot of people who follow you already know that they're great. And you know, the album Life is 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 really killing me. And you know, Lewis Cole is a freak, and Sam Wilkes is a freak, and all that shit. Everybody. I think a lot of people already know that they're, that they're awesome. Well, man, thanks for uh, coming on the show. I appreciate you uh, taking some time to talk to me during this madness. All right, thanks, man. Peace out. For more about Brian, go to his website, brianbeller.com. You'll find all the links to his social media there, as well as ways to purchase his music. Be sure to check out the mega epic double album, Scenes from the Flood, which came out last September. That's going to do it for this episode, folks. Be well. 